Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to episode 57 of The Sweet Spot on a Farm. We are starting the 2021 finding ourselves in yet another lockdown, which leaves plenty of us with a lot of time for cooking, moving our body, and um, reflecting on the past year. And I've been reflecting too, and cooking, and then eating way more than intended. But um, since I've been moving a lot more, um, I think I've just about managed to get away with it. But I've been looking back through the past episodes of our now three years old podcast. And even though I have to admit that I'm not the biggest fan of compilations, I'm just going to throw a couple of them out there. Um, There are two reasons for this. One, uh, with the new lockdown, it's quite difficult to schedule any episodes. And I know we have the internet, but... You know what, I do much prefer face-to-face and the recent wind and rain is making it quite difficult to record outside. So no face-to-face interviews for a little while yet. And uh, the second reason is that while we're going through this pandemic, it may be helpful to reflect on some of the advice and tips we've been given over the past three years by the guests on this podcast Um, It's been great to look back and hear how much I've actually picked up since the podcast started and how much of it I have incorporated into my daily life and how it has helped me get the most of life and become a lot better and healthier version of me, but also how it all has helped me to get through this past completely crazy year that nobody could could have predicted. Um, So... I hope that some of it will inspire you as well. And um, here it is. Uh, There's um, some of your favorite bits, some of my favorite bits, and uh, some bits from those episodes that you have listened to the most. Let's start with my very first guest, who kickstarted this whole journey with episode one and who knows a lot about organic farming. We recorded on his farm which is where the idea for the podcast title came from. And um, it is none other than John McCormick, the founder of Helen's Bay Organic Gardens. I think it's very important to to understand that the primary chemicals in agriculture today are fertilizers, which is nitrogen, mostly nitrogen, um, potassium and phosphates, okay? And um, they are they are the the building blocks of life. Without those elements, which all belong in the table of the elements, um, you, we can't create life of any sort. And they are the fundamentals of plant growth. And so, in order to be able to produce food out of fields, we have to make sure there's enough nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium out there for the plants to thrive on. Otherwise, nothing will grow. And and so that that's the chemical fertilizers. Okay. And the second aspect of once once the fertilizer is in the ground and the plant has been planted, then what happens is you get weeds growing. And so then you have what are called herbicides. And they are sprays that you can spray on the ground and on that plant that are specific to certain weeds but will not affect the plant that you're growing. The next thing is pesticides, which is the third thing. And the pesticides are... Um, are another group of chemicals which are sprayed on the growing plant against all the insects and bugs and slugs and snails and all the other things that might want to eat that plant. Modern food production is completely predicated on the usage of those things. In organic agriculture, we replace the fertilizers 
with natural methods of producing fertility, which is essentially about generating living organisms in the soil. There's lots of things living in the soil. There's more things living in the soil than there is living above the soil. In order for those to, to keep living, they have to feed, and they feed off organic matter. So you produce bulks, bulk organic matter, either through recycling farmyard manures, which is essentially, you know, either chicken or cow manure, on straw, which you're putting back into the soil again after composting it, um, which then those organisms live off, um, and you combine that with growing crops exclusively for ploughing back into the ground again to feed the earth. And if you include um, any of the legume family, that's the P and B family, they also f they also have a mechanism of putting nitrogen in the soil. They have a symbiotic relationship with a bacteria on their roots that lives in the soil that actually produces nitrogen nodules, little white nodules. They look like the chemicals, but they're not. They're natural, natural, pure nitrogen on the roots. If you pull up a bean plant, you'll see these little white balls on it. And that's they're pure balls of nitrogen. And so when that wheat bean plant is cut, that the nitrogen plant, uh, sorry, the plant dies, uh, but those nitrogen modules, modules stay there, slowly rotting away, and allow other plants to come and soak up that nitrogen. We use a combination of things. We grow green manures here in this field out here beside us here. We grow a combination of buckwheat, because it's great for insects when it flowers. It really, really fosters billions of insects around here. It feeds them right throughout. It's a very long flowering period. So it feeds them right throughout the summer and lets, you know, as I say, maybe hundreds of millions of hoverflies and all kinds of other flies, butterflies, every sort of fly, um, complete its life cycle. And... Um, and then we also grow in among that Phaechilia, which is a blue flower, which is great for bees and, um, and nectar hunting insects. And, and then on top of that, we grow uh, in between all that, uh, sewn in with it as well, we grow sunflowers, which then pop their heads out over the top of it and produce sunflowers, which are um, great for feeding birds. And they will bring all the birds in, and then when the whole thing dies down, they'll also, all the seeds, unfortunately, you know, fall to the ground as well. But then those sunflowers attract the birds in because of the sunflowers, and then they'll see all the other seeds, and they'll lift all the other seeds off the ground. And when you go to plough it next spring, then it's a nice, clean, ready, highly fertile piece of ground. And um, so that's building blocks of, of organic agriculture and a combination of recycling any animal manures that are available combined with um, growing green crops to plough in. We call them green manures. And then you crop it for two or three years and then you go back and build up the fertility again. Uh, and if you're a dairy farmer, you would have, instead of having, you know, sunflowers and buckwheat, you grow grass and clover. Clover is a legume. And you would let the cows graze it for two or three years. And it does the same thing. It fixes nitrogen in the ground, creates vast amounts of organic matter. And the cows, you know, do the thing all over it. So you don't even have to carry it out and put it on the field. They do it for you. <laughs> Okay, um, so that's another way of doing it. And the only chemical that's allowed in that process, it's not a chemical, is a stone. And that stone is limestone. And we, we are allowed to bring in limestone, crushed limestone for the soil, if the pH of the soil is wrong. It's very important. Uh, Northern Ireland's soils are mostly a very acid soil, and you need a neutral soil to grow food. Most foods require a neutral soil around 6.5 pH. Most Northern Irish soils are 4.5 to 5.5. Uh, on the acid side. There are limestone areas where you would never be putting lime on because the pH would be high. You're allowed to bring in crushed limestone, which is essentially just a rock, crushed to you know powder and then spread on the land. 
Um, and that's the only chemical input that you would be allowed in organic agriculture for fertility building. And then for pest control and weed control, we have no herbicides for weed control. Everything has to be done mechanically. Uh, we have machinery that will hoe 90% of the weeds, so 10% of the weeds will have to be hand-hoed or hand-weeded. The fact that we have machinery now, very, very clever machinery, you could even get computerised machinery if you want to, I couldn't be bothered, but you can get very clever machinery that will weed mechanically, uh, sitting in front of a tractor, will weed mechanically a field um, and kill off 90% of the germinating weeds, so you're only left with 10% to have to do by hand instead of the whole 100%. Which... I have a really stupid question, but how does the machinery know... What to pull out and what to leave in? No, it doesn't. What it does, it it doesn't. It's it's designed that it just weeds very very close to the plant, around the plant. The ten percent is the tiny little bit of weed left around the plant. That if you hit the plant, with the exception of cabbages and leeks, if you hit the plant, you could kill the plant. Okay. So it weeds just right up to the edge of the plant. You have those machine tools on a tractor, and you have it sitting in front of you. And as I do in a small, tra very tiny tractor, it's called a tool carrier, and they're sitting in front, right in front. You can look at it as you're driving along and steer in between them. Wow. And if you steer wrong, if you get, if you lose your concentration, you can wipe out, you know, a hundred plants very quickly before you realise it. So, you know, you have to really concentrate and be careful. But it's vastly quicker and more efficient than, you know, two men going out with a hand hoe trying to hoe it. It's very, very fast. And there are certain plants like um, transplants, like leeks and cabbages, grow on in, you know, in, in little trays, and then you transplant them out. By the time you're ready to hoe them with the first flush of weeds. They're actually quite a robust little plant. They'll take a bit of knocking about. So you can set those rubber fingers, the weeders, to actually toss the plants about a bit. And so it'll weed around the plants as well. Anyway, that's how we do it. We don't use chemicals. It's all mechanical or hand hoeing. And um, which obviously adds a bit to the cost. If you just went out with one big machine and sprayed the whole thing, you'd have it done in an hour. It could take us a day to do the same thing. Uh, and one person sitting on a tractor uses a sprayer, or it would take two or three men, maybe four men, to do the same thing all day. You know, you can see why the economics of it, and that's why people use it. Um, so there's, there are no herbicides allowed in organic agriculture. Uh, in terms of pesticides, um, there, is, there are organic pesticides allowed, but they're all naturally occurring things. There's very few. There's, they allow you to use um, the biological agents, like in the tunnels we would, um, for a pesticide, we, if we have um, red spider mite, uh, which would be the most common problem in a polytunnel, especially in tomatoes. And they can, if you let them get out of hand, they can completely destroy a crop. Um, so what you do is you um, can buy boxes of wasp, this particular type of wasp that's a predator on the red spider mite. Okay. And you basically seal up your tunnel with nets and then you release a couple of thousand of these wasps that are bred specifically um, that you can buy by the kilo if you want. And you release them into the tunnel and they go around mopping up all the, um, the red spider mites before you open the things and let them out. And then you just let them fly away. <laughs> um, you can buy boxes of, of ladybirds to do the same thing with greenfly. You can, you can just release 10,000 ladybirds into a huge, ginormous polytunnel or glasshouse and they'll mop up all the greenfly and then let them... Then when you're ready, you open the doors and let them out. Wow. <laughs> so that's a biological way of doing it. There's a, a bacteria called Bacteria thuringiensis. I don't use it because I find it too messy, but it's a bacteria that, is a, that actually is a predator on um, caterpillars. I have put my children off broccoli for life by cooking up and serving them broccoli with 
caterpillars falling out of it. <laughs> Boiled caterpillars Oops. falling out of it. <laughs> they won't eat broccoli now. <laughs> In episode three, Belfast herbalist Danny Oro educated me on Hippocratic medicine and explained why we need to look back to nature for answers concerning our health. I go right back to um, what's called the Hippocratic School of Medicine in the ancient Greece, probably about two and a half to three thousand years ago. Before that time, the common belief system was if you were sick, you defended the gods. And along comes Hippocrates and says, no, what you're doing is you're living against nature. And he picked out six areas. He says, here are six areas that you have an influence on that nature doesn't control. So he picked out these kind of six areas and he called them the six non-naturals. And that's a strange term, non-natural. But what he was saying was that these are six areas that nature doesn't control as much as you do as an individual. So he said they are food and drink, that's number one. Detoxification, how well do you eliminate stuff out of your body? How well do you rest? How well do you sleep? How much fresh air do you get? And what are your passions or your emotions like? He says these are six areas that if you live in harmony with nature, in other words, if you eat the right food, you get plenty of sunshine and fresh air, you have a good outlook on life, your positive attitude towards life, these were the keys to health. So when someone comes to see me in a consultation, it's these six areas that I'm looking at in their lives. I mean, primarily I want to know what people are eating. Because I can look at somebody's diet and I often get people to you know do a week's food diet and I can look at it and I can say, well, I can't see any magnesium in that diet. I can't see any essential fatty acids in that diet. And you can, you can then explain to people, if you add these foods that contain these things into your diet, then you're providing the things that you're missing. And maybe the symptoms you have are because you're missing some of these key nutrients. Once we have nutrition going and working, people are happy with it. Um, I move on to, to sleep. How well is somebody sleeping? Why are they waking up during the night? Or why can they not get to sleep? Why is their mind racing and so on? What are they doing that might be contributing to that? And then help them to see other ways to unlearn old behaviours and learn new behaviours um, and establish a regular um, sleeping pattern. And in naturopathy, we call it sleep hygiene, the importance of clean sleep. Because in what is called the delta stage of sleep, that's when your body's starting to repair. It's starting to detoxify. It's starting to pull lactic acid out of the muscles. It's starting to clear toxins through the liver. It's starting to rebuild damaged tissue. But if you wake up, you don't get that. Or you don't get enough of it. So people who are not getting, you know, as adults, 8 to 9 hours of sleep every night are getting suboptimal delta sleep. And that has a knock-on effect on the whole system, particularly the immune system. So it's important to you know, address that and show people ways and means of trying to get to sleep and, and establishing a regular sleep pattern. Um, doing all the obvious stuff, you know, avoiding stimulants um, like caffeine. Uh, and alcohol, which although it's a, a depressant, becomes a stimulant once it's been through the liver um, and so on. And from there then we move into exercise. And a lot of people don't do enough exercise, but some people do too much exercise. And doing too much is a form of stress on the body, and it will cause the adrenal glands to release extra cortisol, extra adrenaline, you know, and can keep people in a fight-or-flight mode, 
And so they're unable to wind down. They find it hard wax because of that, you know. So those are some examples of some of the, the things that I do. So it's very in-depth. But the whole purpose of it is to try and get people to do two things. Is number one, get back to nature. Get back into the natural ways of living, natural ways of eating, and so on and so forth. And number two... Um, restore people's confidence in themselves because a lot of people get sick because they've lost confidence in themselves and today's society is very hard on people people have to work very long hours they have to you know meet production deadlines um, which are often unrealistic and a lot of people don't get the fulfillment and satiation out of life consequently they turn into they comfort it uh, they turn to wrong foods or they turn to drink or drugs or something um, as a way around all that, you know, they get sick and <laughs> they come to see me <laughs> and there we go. But it comes back to those two things for me, is getting people to believe in themselves, to be positive about themselves and then, as I say, to restore their personal relationship with the natural world because that's where healing lies. In episode four, local fermentalista and the founder of the Cultured Club, Dervla Reynolds, talked about the good bugs, the bad bugs, and her creative ferments. Um, she has given us all some really cool tips on how to help the kids enjoy fermented foods. Yeah, I think the fermenting started to play a huge role in this tool of like, kids are kids, and kids are heavily influenced by other kids. And unless you have the power to influence all those parents that are in your sphere, um, then, you know, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen that you're going to get everybody on board healthy eating. For some people, it doesn't matter. You know, food is just food. It doesn't, it doesn't equate to good or bad or, you know, beneficial or not beneficial. Um, so the fermenting really helped me influence my children's taste buds. And therefore, they're kind of, they're taking care of their own decisions, which is which is good. That's actually one thing I really wanted to ask you. How do you get your kids started or what makes kids interested in fermented foods? What do you make for your kids to make them want to eat that? Yeah, it's it's a it's a huge topic because feeding kids is literally like trying to push a balloon up a mountain. Food for kids is like their their last it's like the only thing they have control over is what goes into their mouth so for some parents it's a real struggle and I've been there where you know you can't get them to eat anything and what I found was was kind of starting to talk less about the food and more about what the food does so you know kids love characters kids love to visualize stuff and I and I do talk to them about very simply the good bugs and the bad bugs and 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 I kind of we've we've even imagine these things and put faces on them and you know so they're not actually thinking they're like ants and you know insects inside their tummy and um, we've made them characters and you have good ones and you've bad ones just to keep it simple I know it's very black and white but they do have an understanding that sugar is literally you know it's the bad bugs wanting food it's the bad bugs calling out for some food and when you eat sugar, you make the bad bugs stronger. And those bad bugs make you a little bit grumpy. They're angry. And the more that there are in you, the more you kind of feel a wee bit grumpy, even though they taste, sugar tastes nice, etc. But if you, if you can kind of 
even if you're having a little bit of sugar, help the good bugs out and help the good bugs fight the bad bugs because kids like a bit of conflict too. You know that there is this little fight going on and, and my kids have got it. Like they've, but I mean, it's me telling them all the time about it. So the best tool I think for a parent is to play to their strength and make a fermented food that's sweet. Um, or a fermented drink and what I have on the go all the time is a ginger bug uh, or the other option would be something like water kefir and you make this drink and they have they ask for this drink when they've had sugar which is it's a nice balance uh, but what it has done is opened their taste buds to this slightly tiny bit of a sour taste you know you're not just getting straight sugar it's a bit more complex so you know, my kids will happily have a bowl of miso soup. They will happily have, um, although they don't always know it, maybe because they've never had the real stuff to compare, but I make a fermented mayonnaise, which has got, um, you know, it would have the live brine from a ferment in it. So the mayonnaise is actually alive and contains good bacteria. They would have little bits of sauerkraut, just tiny bits. I don't try and force them to eat a big kind of huge portion of it. Yeah, that is quite a quiet taste. Although it depends what it depends what it. flavor you put in. Yeah, um, you can really disguise it. I find it's open for absolutely um, playing with. They love helping out to make the stuff, which is really good. That helps engage them. When I make things that are maybe just plain carrot, a plain carrot ferment, they like that because again, it's a sweet. There's a sweetness coming through. I ferment their ketchup, so. Actually, I have to say my smuggest moment as a parent was I had fermented some potatoes and then turned them into chips because potatoes are, uh, they are actually difficult for us to digest and giving them a little quick ferment will help with all of that. So I'd made the potatoes that were pre-fermented. I'd made a fermented ketchup and I'd made a fermented mayonnaise and they were sitting having their chips with ketchup and mayonnaise thinking they're you know, all the biz, but everything was, everything had been put through a process to make them more both digestible and beneficial. So it's, you know, you can have little, you can put little tricks in there. I do make milk kefir on and off and that gets put in a smoothie. I have to say smoothies for kids are the most amazing way to get really good food into them. I would Make a smoothie that has got um, prebiotics in it, probiotics. Uh, it would have a little powder that's great for making sure that, um, you know, parasites aren't there. I put vegetable powder. Like, literally, the smoothies they get, they have no idea what is in there. But I feel like it's a complete <laughs> meal. It's, it's, a good, it's a good compromise, let's say. You know, you can spend a lot of time struggling with a child getting them to eat and the more you enforce it the more they're going to resist so I think hiding stuff is really good although at this stage you know because I've had this idea of chatting to the my kids less about eating certain types of food but more about what foods do that I can actually get them to do some really bizarre things so you know when they have a cold I've been able to get them to do a shot of a thing that I may call the master tonic, which is hardcore. Like some adults find it tricky to drink it, but it is onion, chili, garlic, horseradish, and ginger that's all infused into um, apple cider vinegar. And they, when they get a cold, they know 
they do one shot of this and the cold's gone. So I think it's how you approach it. With everything, it's how you approach it. Talking about healthy eating, health coach Trina Tricious explained in episode 9 why listening to your own body is the most important thing and a lot more important than eating in moderation. I think people get so confused you know everything in moderation means yeah well then that means I can have all of these foods as long as I don't maybe do it every day or whatever but if you don't know that that food is really quite toxic to you like non-gluten grains like for me honestly awful just awful sometimes that's worth it but if I don't know then that won't be okay in moderation like for me it's um, tacos or nachos you know which I love Mexican food you know but if I have tacos or nachos the next day I get out of bed and I feel like an old woman my feet are sore my ankles are sore it's very painful and I oh yes I had I had um, Mexican food last night and so I can work that out but if I had that in moderation I would spend a lot of my life in pain mm. without realizing you know so I don't even like the moderation I think it's I think we really need to get to know ourselves we don't listen to our body enough we don't listen to the signals that our body's sending like my ankles are really sore today okay that's probably inflammation why is my body reacting in this way what's going on for me you know I I went to the doctors many times before I worked out for myself and they could never give me an answer because they don't know what's going on for me and they're just trying to work out from a book or whatever from their knowledge what might be wrong with you but only only each individual can really tell what is wrong you know what's going on for me like I say I really do favor the elimination diet because it's only 30 days out of your whole life to make a discovery for yourself that will help direct you in your future so it might seem hard to eliminate and you might see it as a negative thing to eliminate all these foods but you're increasing so many nutrients that you can't help but feel better you know so I don't know anybody that has done it that has had a particularly negative, like we always learn something. So for me, it's continual learning, but that elimination diet really helps you to work out what works for me. Then it helps you to listen more because then as you reintroduce each food group, you can feel how that affects your body. And that allows you to be more connected to your body because you can hear it then and you understand, oh, right, that is because of this and I feel that and blah blah and the next time you feel that tightness across your face or the the throat like swallowing razor blades and you're like oh there was maybe dairy in that I understand what my body's trying to tell me you know you can you can hear better because you can understand because you've made those connections in the first place in a kind of almost scientific way it makes it a bit easier but also breathing breathing closing your eyes and breathing and feeling into your body and really feeling I like my three-year-old does this like he had allergic reaction recently when we were away in France and he was covered in a rash and I was going through the the different foods that he'd eaten that night before um, I'm going mm, was it this was it? and then I asked him I just went what do you think it was and he went it was the peanuts and he'd never had peanuts before and um, that's what he reacted to. I didn't even, you know, so he was able to, because he was given the space to think about that, he was able to answer that. We're all capable of doing that if we give ourselves that space. So it's just about sitting comfortably on your own, quietly, close your eyes and ask yourself, okay, how am I feeling? Where is that? And just see what pops into your head. Your your body is the most intelligent biocomputer in the world. You know, it has all the answers if 
we are just prepared to actually give it time to listen. Nutritionist April Alexandra expanded on the topic of listening to your own body in episode 17. In part one, she explained that even the perfect nutrition itself is not enough to keep us healthy. And she talked about why living balanced and stress-free life is what we really need to strive for. It's finding that balance, I I suppose, and also honouring that that can change at any time as well. So what's working for you one week might not work the next week because of everything else going on. Outside stressors, you know, there's lots happening in the world and we never know what's around the corner. So I think it's not being hard on yourself because a lot of um, people I work with and I've been guilty of it myself is kind of thinking, okay, we're doing this and this is how it's going to be and this routine and, and we need to be a bit more flexible because, yeah, if you don't make it to your workout class or whatever you're doing, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. No- nothing is going to happen. Just, you know, get on with the day. It's a different day and you can do it the next day or whatever you're going to do. But, yeah, it's just people are very, very hard on themselves these days. I think more so than ever. I think the breathing is really, really important. Because it's that so important. Is, you can breathe through anything. Yeah. Um, like So on Saturday, I, I was saying to I went and did the Wim Hof workshop again. Um, and I've done that workshop before. And it's just, it's a, it's a bit longer and... It's just always good to get that reminder. And when you're doing it in a group setting, I don't know how you feel about this. So I just feel like it really brings back to you how important it is. And then you hear everyone else in the group. You hear how they find it, what they experienced. There is something re- something more calming for me about doing it in a group yeah, setting. Yeah, me too. For yeah, some I reason. totally agree. I don't know. But I do actually, since the workshop, and that was in February... I've been trying to do the breathing every day and if I can't make it in I try to do it first thing in the morning when I yeah. wake up and if for some reason I forget or, or I sleep in or I really can't do that I try to do it later before I go to sleep actually if I do it before bedtime I sleep so much better I mean I, I am mm-hmm. a good sleeper anyway yeah but I just I get like more quality better quality sleep for some reason but that breathing really changed things for me and even now we went on a hike in Wicklow Mountains there Mm. at the weekend and towards the end we did 17 and a half k and it was like the most I've done so far yeah and I'm not a big hiker we're just training for uh, for Morocco later this year so I that was like a big challenge but the last few hundred meters I really thought I couldn't do it I was just my legs were so sore and I was just I was ready to give up and then something clicked here and I was like I can breathe through it. Mm-hmm. So I started breathing properly and I was really focusing on my breath and then I was focusing on putting one foot in front of the other. Yep. And when I was focusing on the breath, suddenly I wasn't focus, focused on the pain or on anything else around me or on the fact that I decided not to do the rest of it. I just focused and I breathed. And before I knew it, I was at the car park yep. and I've done it. I was up the hill and suddenly I was bursting with, with energy. So I, there was like a little hill with, with an extra view over the lake. I was just like, I'm just going to run up the <laughs> hill and view, and get, get the view of the lake because everybody there was doing it. I was like, yeah. hmm, I suddenly had the energy to do yeah. that. And it's like just breathing through it. It's incredible. It is. And, you know, that what you said there. You know, you were saying you had to just focus on your breath and and one foot in front of the other, one step at a time. That's just really important in everyday life because everything can just get too much 
you know, if we don't manage stress or we don't we don't become mindful of it, you know, essentially we just need to pull it all back and take things step by step and most things can be sorted out when you sit down and logically think through them. So I think that on all levels, slowing things down, um, work-wise, social-wise, you name it, like that's really important as well for managing stress and also learning to say no to things that you know, that, that, that's okay. You don't have to always be available for people or um, have you don't have to always go to social events, whatever it is. You don't have to feel that pressure because sometimes it's just really important to take time for you away from it all and do stuff that makes you happy. And if that's reading a book, if that's exercising, if it's cooking, whatever it is, you know, there's so many outside pressures, I think, in the world. You don't have to say yes to everything and you can choose what you want to do and what you don't want to do and how often you do it. That's what we're here for, to live. Life's for living. In episode six, a truly inspiring raw chef, Barbara Fabish, talked about her experience with raw foods and why she decided to give it a try many years ago. What made you change your eating? Well, I had very bad arthritis, which was affecting my quality of life and making me feel old. And I don't do pain. So I was always trying... I don't do pharmaceuticals. So I was always looking for a natural... Um, solution to the arthritis so I read in the vegetarian magazine about Andrew Davis who'd cured his arthritis with a raw food diet and he'd started the raw food school this was about 11 years ago and so I booked myself on the next course and the food was so delicious especially his um, macadamia and dill dip and the crackers and especially his strawberry cheesecake I thought this is fantastic because I love food and I love eating. Oh my God, strawberry cheesecake. Like years ago, I couldn't even imagine that you can make cheesecake and not put it in the oven. That's incredible. And we actually talked about it at lunch. There's so many desserts and, and great foods that you really don't need to heat. You don't need to put in the oven. You don't need to bake. You don't need to boil. It's absolutely incredible. So you went on a course and what happened after? Uh, well, I, I changed my diet radically and I went on a lot of detoxes. And Was it an overnight thing or did you have to take time to think about it? No, 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 I'm not that kind of person. No, 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 I'm an all or nothing kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> so straight into it? Yeah. Went yeah. home, threw everything out of the cupboards yeah. and let's start? yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh my god yeah that that's what I did only when I threw everything out of my cupboards I sat on the floor and I cried <laughs> because I had no idea what to eat yeah but you obviously having been on the course you probably had a fair I idea. had a better idea yeah unfortunately there was a lot of dried it did have a lot of dried fruit in it so I didn't quite understand the implication of sugars at that time but I was lucky I got into raw food at a time when it was all fairly new so I was able to go on workshops with Russell James, the raw chef. He doesn't do them anymore. It's all online. I went on a retreat with David Wolfe, who talked to us for three hours every day for five days. I mean, now he kind of goes around with bodyguards. I was lucky to get access to people that you wouldn't do now. And um, I went on retreats. I went, uh, I went to Hippocrates for three weeks in Florida, where they had lectures every day, Monday to Friday, from like 10 in the morning till six at night. And I think I went to every single one. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so why would you encourage people to go raw? Well, I think the important message is that you don't have to go 100% raw. 100% raw is the best healing diet. 
So if you want to heal yourself, then 100% raw is, is the way to go. Um, but that frightens people and also they assume that they'll have to do it for the rest of their life, that they'll never be able to have anything cooked again or um, have a plate of pasta or whatever. But there's a big difference between a healing diet and, and, a, and a maintenance diet. So the healing diet gets the body back into balance. And once it's back into balance, then you can slowly introduce things that um, you'd like to include in your diet, make it more varied because a healing diet's quite, narrow and focused and see what your body will tolerate and see what you like because once you've cleaned out your body your body just will not tolerate dirty food or food that's been processed or isn't fresh or it's been sprayed it'll just go please you must be joking so what does it do what do you reckon it does to people when they go on a raw or when they introduce more raw foods into the air what's the benefit well raw food has more life in it because it hasn't been cooked to hell and back if it's got more life in it when you eat it you have more life you just feel better you look better your skin clears up your digestion is more regular um, and it also is lighter on your body it's much easier on your body um, as long as you prepare it in the right way and and you eat foods that are easily digestible Paula Haney, the founder of Skinny Malinkis, used to suffer quite badly with autoimmune condition. And she's another person who I loved talking to about managing and overcoming the debilitating effects an illness can cause. Um, and just like with Barbara, I absolutely loved how Paula has turned her own remedies into business. Yeah, it's just really been listening to my body to see what affects me and adenine juice and probiotic and we're actually about to release a new product they're called zing tings and they're little shots but very potent shots more american style i would say than anything that's in the uk or ireland already but uh, we have a tummy tonic which is apple cider vinegar lemon and a touch of maple syrup and um, that was really that. good really potent we've got a turmeric tonic which is really high amount of turmeric raw turmeric root not the powder combined with black pepper which is essential to release the curcumin and some pineapple and that's an inflammatory shot and that's called a tummy tonic then we've got a beet blast which is beet ginger and lemon and that is really just extra concentration of uh, beetroot so you can take that's really good pre-workout And then our final piece de resistance is the Sniff Buster. And that is fresh lemon. A touch of orange juice is the only product we've used any orange in. So lemon, orange, fresh chilies, maple syrup and ginger. And that's really so when you feel those first signs of a cold, the mm -hmm. sniffles coming. What I find, this is a shot I make myself at home if I was feeling unwell. Nine times out of ten, if I bang a few of those... I won't get the cold and it's really trying to hit it off as a first defense. So that's our new range and that's adding those into my life as well and really drinking the apple cider vinegar every day has helped so much. So I've gone from uh, you know waking up with swollen face that looks like I've been beaten up with all these kind of welts and, and purple marks all over it and my body swollen to getting occasional swellings and more hives I haven't really had welts for quite a while touch wood but I think a lot of that is down to the probiotics 
the high levels of potent ingredients in the juice and really listening to my body. In episode 12, I talked science with a little nerdy Belfast-based chiropractor, Nick Mancuso, who was doing quite a lot of research into the ketogenic diet at the time. And in this particular bit, Nick shares some of the research that is available out there. But if you are interested in hearing about keto and physical training, we talked quite a bit about this in the rest of the episode. There is a wide variety of applications for the ketogenic diet and benefits that people can... Uh, traditionally, this was used for children, for pediatric epilepsy. Uh, back in the 1920s, used for them, they found that when medication failed, adapting a high-fat, lower-carb, ketogenic-type diet would decrease these, the seizure frequency quite significantly in these children. And that's where the, the first beginning of research kind of came in. Um, but now looking at it recently, they're one of the leading researchers into the ketogenic diet, uh, an associate professor uh, in the Department of Pharmacology at the University of South Florida, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, was poised with um, doing a bit more research for epilepsy and Navy SEAL divers. And during his research uh, and trying to produce almost a ketone type supplement for these divers to, to prevent the dietary restrictions required to get into ketosis, which via diet it takes five days to enter ketosis or two days of fasting to completely uh, deplete your glycogen stores so that you're primarily running off of fat. Uh, what he found in his research is that this also was beneficial for treating um, other types of pediatric conditions, such as type 1 uh, glucose transporter deficiency syndrome, and amongst other types of syndromes where uh, children cannot utilize glucose effectively, and that the ketones are an alternative for that. But what he had also found is that this was potentially a, a, an effective metabolic treatment for cancer. He has a really cool TED Talk, um, and I would uh, recommend any of your listeners to check out his TED Talk. It's uh, If you simply Google search starving cancer, you'll be able to find that, and it's the one with the, it's out of Tampa, Florida, and Dominic D'Agostino. So, um, but besides cancer, besides uh, what this now is used for with a lot of bodybuilders and weightlifters for uh, controlling body weight and decreasing the amount of fat in their body. There's many different applications in terms of even neurological functioning. Besides epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, even things like uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is ALS. You probably remember from uh, last summer where, was it last summer or two summers ago, where they had the ice bucket challenge? Yes. Yeah, and they, you know, raising money for Lou, for Lou Gehrig. So there is actually some amazing evidence for that. Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, dementia, many different neurological disorders, uh, they have found that basically the brain can't utilize or uptake glucose very effectively in these disorders. But when given ketones as an alternative energy source, they function very effectively. There's actually a, a site in, the, in each cell in the, in the brain, as well as most cells in the body, that uh, can utilize ketones as an energy source. So when they fail through being injured or damaged uh, through many of these different other conditions, ketones kind of come to the rescue and uh, help utilize that. Episode 16 was one of my most favorite 
conversations I've ever had in my life. Mentor, life and fitness coach, magician and hypnotherapist, and also the author of Limitation is a Mirage, Liam O'Neill, talked about the power of one's mind and the importance and the potential of the body and mind coming together with such energy and authenticity you can't help getting sucked in. Hearing about his own life lessons, adventures and achievements is something you definitely shouldn't miss. Probably one of the questions I get asked a lot in my talks is how much of this is bullshit? So people will say to me, claim you're, you're positive and you focus on the good and everything. How much of that's just lies? Like when you go home, do you just sit at home and cry? And like I don't, I am a positive person, but I, I wasn't a long time ago. I used to be, very, like I said before, I was quick to anger and I knew a lot about martial arts and things like that. So whenever I got to anger, I could have done things that most most others couldn't have done and, and I used to have to use it in, in the bar trade where you'd use control and restraint and I would have always controlled with pain rather than just control so one day I was getting grief in the bar and a guy said that he called my mum fat which if he called me anything I didn't care he spoke about my family I, I got angry so he called my mum fat and by the time I got around to the front of the bar to him he called her skinny so then I worked out he was just saying words. It was like a wee penny drop moment. All of the study, all the martial arts and the meditation and all, I was doing it because I had to do it because I wanted to be a great martial artist. All of the relaxing and staying calm and all of the stuff I thought was nonsense, I was just doing it because my instructor, like Sheila used to make me stand out in her garden on one foot and she'd come and help me with a stick every so often make sure I was stable. And it was just annoying me and I was just thinking, this is wasting my time. I want to punch stuff. I want to be, like, I want to be able to use this martial art for what it's for and you're always taught that the more you learn the less you'll use I didn't believe that I believed I would become great and I would just use all of it and um, so I just realized he was just saying stuff he was saying your mum's fat and then I said to him like for all you know my mum is fat or skinny you've done both and then he just called her stupid and then in my head it was like he may as well have said uh you're wearing a jumper and you're holding a cup it just didn't make any sense anymore to me so he just and he ranted and that was the first time I ever learned about fighting fire with water. And I just thanked him. And I said, things, like, when he called her fat, I said, oh, she could probably tidy up her diet a wee bit, you know. And then he said she was skinny, and I just repeated it. She probably tidy her diet a wee bit, put on a wee bit of weight, you know. And he just ran out of things to say and ended up just staring at me and then leaving the bar. And I remember the, the bouncers, I used to train the, the door staff and control and restraint. And they used to just watch to see what I would do. They would never help. They would just watch. And they were like, oh, we thought you were going to do something cool. And I was like, that was the coolest thing I've ever done. Everything I learned uh, is in incorporated in health, health and fit. So it's not just health and fitness. That's what I started in. And then that health and fitness was all exercise. And then you had to learn about food. So my learning about food, when I started to teach people about nutrition and stuff like that, I was really happy that about 10 years ago, a chef was ill and I ended up working in the kitchen. I was a barman, but I ended up doing the kitchen for two weeks. I started just being a, just prepping veg but then it got it was really busy, so I ended up getting right up to cooking steaks and filleting fish and just learning everything. Like the it was like a two week intensive chefery course. So then when I started talking about nutrition and food and how to prep food, I had an understanding of how to do all that. So all of it, the magic helps you open your mind because people. So say for example, you you want to achieve something and you think you can't. So then I do a magic trick that you think is impossible. That then proves to you that anything's possible. If you want to become less anxious and I want to improve your sleep to make you more 
stable and balanced. Improving what you eat is a bit is a good way of improving your sleep. So you have to learn about all of it. So it's all it all seems random. Like if you drew it out, it seems like a real random mesh of stuff. But whenever you tie it all together, it's all the whole thing is you benefit in your life, mentally and physically, to be stronger, to achieve whatever you want to achieve. You have to take all of that into into play. Episode thirty one was a funny one and one I really enjoyed. I sat down on a beach on a sunny day in Newcastle with my friend James, an accountant, um, an accounting exam coach and mentor. And we talked about many things, including his mad love for spuds and Sunday roast. But in this particular bit, um, he talks about how we often overlook the importance of knowing how we learn. And he shares some wisdom into why meditation is applicable in the life of an accountant as much as anybody else's. And I find this particularly fitting during these bizarre times the whole world is currently living in. Do you know how you learn? You know, people don't. People generally, what what I find most of my clients do, is that they will go and read a textbook and then they will wholesale write out the textbook again. That's how a lot of people learn. But it's not the right thing for them. The reason why I know that is because I've done that all the way through uni. Then it became, whenever I went to work, I didn't have the time to do that. So I decided, I devised another way I learned, which is much quicker and much more effective for me. But people don't think about that. People don't think about anything like that. So that's where I then decided to devise my own accounting exam pass system, as I call it, um, which is a course that t- talks people through all this. And that's really where it came from. And then over the last three years, the, the proof of it was that people around the world are coming to me and going, Christ, I need help. So therefore, there's a market for it. And yeah, so that's where I created, it literally came from an idea. And a friend of mine said to me yesterday, because it's still a work in progress, the version one is better than version none. So basically, I've just blagged this together and it's working for people. There was no business plan. There was no strategy. There was nothing. There is going to be all that now coming up because version one's going to come into version two. It's going to get more slick. But I basically bootstrapped this business together. Never borrowed a penny for it. It's all in my head. Built the first website for 200 quid. Fired up my name up on LinkedIn and, and Facebook. Was well known for doing some wacky exam tips whether it be outside the Royal Palace in Madrid or on the top of Slee Donard. So you've got this agent doing a video from the top of wherever that may be, Niagara Falls, saying this is how you manage your time and doing an exam. And then that's how I got my name out there because I appeared very, very different to a teacher or an accountant. You look at me and you go, there's no way you're an accountant. The way I act is not like an accountant. So that's probably what why I became a wee bit notorious because, yeah, I don't maybe look like or go on like the stereotypical of what I should be. The first question I ask any of my clients is, why are you doing this shite for? <laughs> that's the number one question I ask my clients why are you doing this shit? do you not realise the amount of hours you're going to put in do you not realise the sacrifice you're going to put in the hard work that has to be put in and they go yeah I do so I go why and they've never ever thought of that before never thought of it and most people say money but it's more than just money um, I'll give you an example a client of mine in Cyprus he wanted to make his once he thought about it he wanted to make his two daughters proud of him he procrastinated for nine years to do his final exam Nine years. Wow. And he put it off and he put it off and he was free to admit that he got into such a rut with other areas of his life with his health and stress at work and all that that it just 
passed him by. And he gave me a call, and to be honest with you, I gave him a bollocking. I just went straight through him for a shortcut. Again, I'm, pri- pri- I'm probably quite good at that. I can put my arm around some people and give a rocket to the others, depending on, on that person. And I said, why are you doing it? And he came back to me and said, I want to make two daughters proud. And he passed his final exam. That was one of my greatest ever successes. Because I actually, you actually get to the core of why you want to do something. Now, you may discover that you become an accountant and then use that world-class qualification for something else. But that's the driver. Once the shit hits the fan, what's going to get you up in the morning to study for the next session? That's essentially what I want to get at. It's stress, though. So people will, will want to do this accounting co- uh, course with me, and then I don't talk about accountancy. They go, what the frig's going on? Why are you not talking to me about accountancy? But then I ask them the why question, and then I mention things like meditation. And they go, again, we're not talking about accounting. I go, well, hold on a minute. Your stress is through the roof. Let's get you right back, calm, calm down here and get you grounded here. Because if you're not, you're not going to be rational in your thoughts. You're not going to be able to take on any new information. Your stress management is going to be rock bottom. So let's talk about a process to put in play that will help manage your mindset. Meditation will help you, will help your cognitive ability so you can study more or retain information more and B, manage your anxiety levels. Why should we not talk about it? So that's where my stress management piece comes in. And... Um, it's, it's worked wonders for people. People will look at me and go, you're an absolute lunatic. And then remember the past exam and say, thank you so much for that. I hope you enjoyed this journey through some of the episodes of the past three years. Um, there will be more of these compilations to follow, at least another one, if not two, just to get us through this lockdown until we can resume more face-to-face chats like these. Um, and to continue our tradition of sharing recipes, I will share one of my one of my new breakfast granola ones that I came up with over Christmas. One of my favorite Christmas foods are cranberries. Um, I just love these sour berries, absolutely bursting with flavor, in my opinion. And um, and and I know they're sour, and it's not to everybody's taste, but um, I love the sour taste. Sadly, these are not something I can forage for in here. In here, I'm in Northern Ireland. Um, so I tend to buy frozen organic cranberries. And this year, I also sourced out some dried cranberries, sweetened with a bit of a pure apple juice and uh, without any other processed sugars, um, which was a bit of a mission because I, I don't know why everybody puts sugar into cranberries. So um, I made this thing in a dehydrator um, and I, I get it, not everybody has a dehydrator. So if you do not have one, you can still make this recipe. Um, you can just use um, your oven either at low settings to make it more of a nutritious granola than baked or you can simply just bake it. The benefits of dehydrating are that it obviously leaves you with more nutritional value um, but also there's the conveniency of cooking it that way because you can turn it on, set the timer and walk away from it. And yes, it takes some 20 odd hours, but you don't have to watch it. You can just, you know, go to sleep or go for a walk or whatever or go to work. And it's absolutely safe. Whereas um, even if you set your oven at 50 degrees, you can't just leave it there for 20 hours and walk away. A, the oven is a lot more demanding when it comes to electricity. Um, If you have a gas oven, God, I would not turn gas on for 20 hours. Um, And whether it's gas or electric, you don't want to just turn your oven on and then go to bed or you know go to work and uh, that's just not something you would do so uh there's the 
you know, convenient um, way of um, using a dehydrator. But if you don't have one, you can just bake it. This makes about a liter and a bit jar of granola. And you will need 300 grams of pumpkin seeds, 200 grams frozen cranberries, 180 grams of oats, 150 grams of coconut chips, 150 grams sunflower seeds, 100 grams of coconut oil, 75 to 100 mils of oat milk or coconut milk or any other plant-based milk that you like, 75 grams of milled chia seeds, 50 grams of dried cranberries and 20 grams of inulin powder. You can substitute that for any other sweet powder you have. You can use powdered stevia if you have one aim for inulin based one if you're not in northern ireland i can highly recommend a modern nature one because it's inulin based if you buy any other um more commercially available um powdered stevia it is very likely to be mixed with artificial sweeteners so just be aware of that um you can also just leave it out if you want to um, or you can use a protein powder if you have coconut flavored or citrus flavored or berry flavored um, protein powder that you like, you can just chuck that in instead. Um, then you'll need one medium um, juice from one medium lemon and use the zest as well. So ideally you'd have organic unwaxed lemon. If the lemon has been waxed, um, you need to properly wash it in a veggie wash or something else or warm water to remove the wax first. Then you'll need 10 drops of orange oil, 5 drops of lemon oil and half a teaspoon salt. Now if you don't have orange and lemon essential oils, you can substitute for uh, lemon or, uh, and orange essence. And if you don't have that either, um, you can just add more lemon juice. And if you have oranges, just add in orange juice. You will soak your oats in the milk, whichever you used, for about half an hour. Um, you can do it overnight if you want, but half an hour is sufficient. Then you roughly chop all the seeds and place them in a mixing bowl. And mix half of your coconut in and the dried cranberries. You can chop uh, the dried cranber cranberries into smaller pieces if you like. And then you melt the coconut oil and defrost your cranberries. The way I defrost them is I soak them in boiled but not boiling in a warm water for um, 5-10 minutes and they'll defrost pretty quickly. And then blend the rest of the coconut chips uh, the melted coconut oil and the defrosted cranberries together with lemon juice and zest, the orange and lemon oil, salt and the inulin powder and blend it into a smooth paste. Then mix the cranberry mixture with the soaked oats and then combine the dry mixture with the wet mixture. Mix it properly until it's really well combined and then just spread the granola over about four Teflex sheets if you have dehydrator. If you don't have dehydrator that you are going to need probably two, potentially three um, baking trays, uh, lined baking trays. Um, if you have a dehydrator, you dehydrate it at 41 degrees for about 20 to 24 hours. It really depends how thinly you spread it. Um, if you're doing it in the oven, I haven't tried it in the oven, so I can't tell you um, how many degrees or what gas mark or how long to bake it for. You're just going to have to try it. I would say about 160 degrees, maybe 170. And I'm going to go and guess maybe 
25 minutes or so. Keep an eye on it. You will find this recipe as always on our social media, on our Facebook group page. It will be in the file section and um, our podcast recipe collection um, is out. It was out just before Christmas and it is available um, in the same place. You will find it in the file section. You can download it for, download it for free and um, I would really appreciate if you considered donating um, to the charity of our choice, Mind Your Mate and Yourself and the link is in the on the first page. And that's really it. If you liked this compilation or if you liked any of our past episodes, I would really appreciate if you um, if you left some feedback on whichever platform you listen to us, be it iTunes, be it SoundCloud, be it any other platform that you use, um, any feedback, any rating, any stars that you can submit would be much appreciated. And I do thank every single one of you who's already done so. Have a lovely couple of weeks. Um, try spending some more time in nature. Breathe eat well and try to think positive no matter how hard it currently seems. Listen to your body and stay healthy in 2021. Happy New Year! As every week, your host is myself, Susanna from The Sweet Spot. Music by Mark J. Adair and artwork by Gemma O'Hagan. Thank you for listening. Thank you.